Once again, uh, the singing was spectacular. Very uplifting, good choice of songs. Uh, very encouraging to think about some of these things. The glory of the Lord and thinking about the reward of heaven. If you weren't here with us Thursday night, we talked about the grace of God and we identified the grace of God in many ways, but that leaves us with several questions, one of which we looked at last night, which, does grace encourage sin? And with that question, we looked at some questions that Paul asked to the Romans about their baptism and about things that occurred when they were saved and when they were united with Jesus. And tonight we want to ask another question about grace, and that is, if God's grace is greater than our sin... Does God's grace, therefore, overlook sin? Has God changed since God's grace has come into the world? Now, we're, I'll just go ahead and warn you. We'll probably revisit about three or four passages from Thursday night, not because we want to be repetitive, but so we can build upon some things that we uh, sort of introduced Thursday night. We're going to begin in the Psalms, in Psalms 89 and verse 14. This was a prophecy that was given by the psalmist David regarding the Messiah. And in that psalm, he begins to say things that talked about the nature of the coming of the Messiah. And in that, he says these words. He says, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. In David's reflection upon the Spirit of Christ which was in him signifying, he said these words, Justice and judgment are the very place where your throne sits. And then he says, Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. As if to say, Lord, wherever you go, mercy and truth are there, following you or in front of you. You know, when I think of these two things, justice and mercy... They don't really go together. <laughs> now we understand what justice is, don't we? And we, we talked a little bit about that the other night, about the law and how law has punishments. We have a judicial system here in America, don't we? Now it's not perfect. Now the design of it was pretty good. It's not perfect. But you know, you think about uh, our judicial system when someone commits a crime, why, you know, you don't just go punish them, there's a trial that happens. And there's evidence that's presented. And during that trial, if evidence is presented that it's in their opposition, why, well, they're, they're punished. You know, I remember when I was young, uh, I guess I say I was young, I was 13 or 14, I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I remember one night we were at home and we were watching the television and all of your regular scheduled programming disappeared and all of a sudden we're getting a helicopter view of some white Bronco going down the interstate, you know, Driving at the speed of smell. This is the slowest police chase we've ever seen. And we don't know what's going on. And then they come on and they say, O.J. Simpson is running from the police. And we're like, what is happening? And then when we went to school, we heard the teachers and we heard the principal. And everybody was talking about this trial that was happening. Because this man was accused of murdering his wife and her supposed lover. And I remember all the talk. 
And as the evidence was being presented, you could see it was stacking up in one direction. I mean the prosecution, they were nailing it. And then all of a sudden, here comes Johnny Cocker, and he said, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. And they bought it. <laughs> and then I remember there were different feelings. People were mad. They were upset. And they're saying, you know what? If he wouldn't have been a celebrity, he'd be in jail right now. We want justice. Do we really? Do we? Is that what you want? Do you want justice? I don't. <laughs> Not really. I mean, we say we do. We look at other people's lives and we see that they do things and we say, well, it's just not fair that they weren't punished harshly. I suppose it's not. Maybe sometimes we ought to be thankful everything's not fair. People think, well, you know what? God used to be a God of justice. I mean, he was ferocious. You look at the Old Testament and God was punishing sin and he was a God of ferocity. You know, but, but he's changed, you know. He's brought Christ to the world. Now God's a God of grace, like he's bipolar or something. As if God had a nature and all of a sudden his nature just totally changed. Has God changed? See, some people have the idea, well, God's grace is so great that it's just going to totally overlook sin. Is God a God of only love? You know, I can't think of a better description to describe our God than a God of love. In fact, that's what John said in 1 John 4. God is love. But is he only love? And kind of tied along with that idea is this, uh, you know, that everybody is okay. God's grace is so great, he's just going to save everybody. Doesn't matter what you do, what you say, doesn't matter how you live, don't worry. God is a God of love. But then we read in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13 where Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. You know one thing I appreciate about the teachings of Jesus is they were never politically correct. He always taught truth. You know what Jesus said? He said, most people are lost. Most people. Most people are headed toward destruction. Just a few, he says, will walk down the straight and narrow way. Just a few. That kind of throws a wrench in the idea of everyone's okay. Listen, if you're going to say that God is only a God of love and everybody's fine, you have to then call Jesus a liar. Because Jesus said there's a path that leads to destruction and it's broad, it's wide, and many people are going down that path. People are confused about God's justice. Do you know there's another idea, one which we sort of touched on the other night, and that is that there's this scale up in heaven. And when we go and stand before God, He's going to put our good works on one side, our bad works on the other, and hopefully our good works will outweigh the bad works. And if it does, why, we'll be good. 
This is the idea of, well, I'm a good person. Well, what makes you a good person? Well, because I do good things. Well, what do you mean you do good things? Well, I'm not evil. I mean, I don't go out and kill people. I'm, I mean, I'm not out doing these terrible things everybody else is doing. I do more good than bad. That's the same idea that the Jews had. And that's what we talked about. Where Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Paul said the reason why Israel's not saved is because they don't understand God's righteousness and they're too busy trying to attain their own righteousness. What were they doing? Trying to be more good than bad. Sometimes we talk about sincerity. Well, I'm sincere. God knows my heart. I don't have an evil heart. I'm not wicked. I've got a very dear friend of mine that tells me this. God knows my heart. He's not going to condemn me. I have a good heart. I'm a good person, basically. <laughs> the Bible says, as it is written... There is none righteous. No, not one. There's not a single person that knows right from wrong who can stand up and say, I've never done anything wrong. There's none righteous. He says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does that mean, short of the glory of God? That means we have come short of who God is, what He is. He is holy, He is perfect, and He is just. And we have all come short of that glory. Well, yeah, but God's not going to punish every sin. <laughs> well, which ones is He going to let go? Oh, see, the idea of universal salvation and God's grace overlooking sin is good until you look at someone like the Green River Monster up that murdered over 20 women. Well, you know, he's not going to overlook that. Or we go, we talk about, you know, Pol Pot or Adolf Hitler or someone like, well, no, he, certainly his grace won't cover that. What's it going to cover? Well, you know, there's certain things that you do, like, you know, you lie, you steal. You know, everybody does these things. You know, they may do them when they're young, but, or, or, or cussing, or, you know. So what you're saying is, is that God's justice is a lot like our judicial system. And there are certain sins that really, it ain't that big a deal, so let's just not punish that one. Listen, God is perfect. God is going to punish sin. And he's going to punish every sin. Every one of them. He's not going to let any sin go. Because he can't. Because if he does, he has no justice. He just let it all go. If he lets one go, if he justifies one man who has sin, he can justify a man who has a thousand sins. He's not just going to overlook it. Isaiah 64 and 6, we read this also Thursday night. I want to 
revisit this passage. He says, we're all as an unclean thing and all the righteousness, all of our righteousness rather is as filthy rags. Now, I mentioned the other night, I always stain a shirt. I'm bad about that. But, you know, when I first read this passage, it made me think of when I used to go to the mechanic and they'd have the old red rags, you know. Now everybody buys the blue shop towels because you can just throw them away. But I remember they had these stacks of red rags folded up and they were bundled. And then you'd have this other stack of red rags, and they were covered in grease and grime. I wonder what they did with those. I wonder if there's a mechanic somewhere that took those nasty, greasy rags and put them in a box and then put a nice wrapping on it, put a bow on it, took it home to his wife. Honey, I brought you a gift. Good luck with that, fellas. Is that a good gift? Yet we stand before our God and we say, God, I'm a good person. Here you go. Hope that my offering is acceptable. Here I am. Filthy, grimy, rags, righteousness. God has not changed. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnestly to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels, now that is the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Did you hear what he just said? He said, under the law of Moses... Every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. In other words, if you committed a sin, there was a suitable punishment attached to that sin. I want to look at an example of that here in a moment. But I want you to notice verse 3. He says, if that's the case for them, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? You know, when I think about this, it takes me back to Nadab and Abihu. These uh, two men were priests of God, and they went into the temple, and they offered service to God. The Bible says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. Now, let's just examine what the narrative is telling us. These men went into the temple, and they offered worship. We have a saying in our society, three out of four ain't bad. What they did was mostly right. They were in the right place. I mean, they had the censer. They took the incense. They made a burnt offering before God. They did that in the correct place as well. well what they did was mostly right, right? They neglected one seemingly minute detail. I don't know where they got their fire from. He doesn't say. He just tells us it was strange. Strange fire. Not a big deal. And I just wonder if when the other priests came into the temple and there close to that altar was Nadab and Abihu no longer drawing the breath of life. Their bodies charred by fire from God. They said, you know what? What they did was mostly right. 
That wasn't a big deal. I never read in the Old Testament another instance of men offering strange fire at the altar of incense. You know why? Because they remember this. Every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward. And what is the logic of the writer of Hebrews? He said, look, if the word spoken by angels, Moses' law punished every sin... How shall we escape if we neglect not angels, but the very words of the Son of God? He said, shouldn't that be better? God hasn't changed. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 28, the Bible says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now here's that idea again of justice and mercy. I want you to notice the phrase here, died without mercy. Mercy. We played a game last night where you were accused of a crime and you got to plead your case. Sometimes the innocent people were killed. (laughs) Wrongly convicted. There were witnesses there. You know what? That's how Moses' law worked. There were witnesses. Why, if somebody was accused of a crime, you didn't just kill them. But he says if there were two or three witnesses, there was no mercy. They couldn't plead their case. People witnessed this crime. They witnessed this sin. Therefore, they died without mercy. Numbers chapter 15 and verse 32. The Bible says, And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. They that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and unto Aaron and all the congregation. And they put him in ward because it was not declared what should be done unto him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. Here's a man who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. Is it wrong to pick up sticks? No. Is it wrong to pick up sticks on the Sabbath day? Yes. Was that his crime, picking up sticks? No, he despised Moses' law. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord our God, and that day thou shalt do no work. This man knew that law. He despised that law. Guess who saw him? Two or three witnesses. What happened to him? Well, they locked him up. They didn't know what the punishment for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day was, but they knew it was wrong. And God said, you take him outside the camp and you throw rocks at him until he is dead. No mercy. Justice. That's what Moses' law did. That's what he says. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy. And his logic here says of how much sorer punishment. Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. And counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and done despite under the Spirit of grace. For we know him that it said, Vengeance belongeth to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And then he says, The Lord shall judge his people. Has God really changed? Did God's justice disappear whenever the grace of God entered into the world? Absolutely not. And the Hebrew writer says, Look, if people that despise Moses and Moses' law and the blood of bulls and goats received a punishment and die without mercy, what do you suppose will happen to the person that despises the blood of the only Son of God? 
should not the punishment be worse? You know, the truth is, we're really not righteous. And we're really not good people. Now again, yes, if we're looking at ourselves in the light of some of the most, you know, wicked monsters that have ever lived on the face of the earth, sure, we get to feeling like good people. In the book of Romans chapter 1, he talks about the Gentiles and he says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which were not convenient. You know, that sounds a lot like today. People don't want to retain God in their knowledge. They don't want to think about the fact that there is a God. There is a God who is just and a God who will punish sin. So you know what they do? They just don't think about it. And what did God do? Well, he allowed them to have that mindset. It took them to a mind that was void of judgment. Didn't bother them to go out and commit wickedness. Their conscience was seared. And then he names some of the things that they did. He says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Without understanding, covenant breakers. Without natural infection, implacable, unmerciful. Well, that's a lot of things, isn't it? You know why I highlighted these things? These are things I've been guilty of. What about you? Can you look up there and say, I've never done any of those things. I never told a lie. I've never committed a sin of lust. I've never whispered or backbited. I've never been proud. I've never been disobedient to my parents. We're guilty. All have sinned. He says you're guilty. And he says that those who know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy, they deserve to die. We're not good people. I don't want justice. And neither do you. And if everything in life was fair, this building would be empty. And you say, well, what about our children? They'd be, no, they wouldn't because you'd have died, because your parents would have died, because everyone would have died if justice was really served. We wouldn't be here. Thank God for his mercy. But friends, that mercy, it's not going to be extended and applied to every single person oh it's there it's offered to everyone Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13 
Solomon, in the conclusion of what you might call the great experiment, said, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, I want to notice verse 14. He says, For God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good and whether it be evil. Let's just play with this idea for a minute that we're good people. I want to ask you a question. What if everyone in here in just this small gathering of people knew everything that you had ever thought? You know, I've known a lot of you, some of you all my life. And if you knew everything that I'd ever thought, I would find the deepest hole to hide in and never come out again. That would be totally humiliating and I promise you, I would not feel like a good person, would you? What if everybody knew everything you'd ever said? Would you feel like a good person? If everybody here knew everything you'd ever said? We might even have to apologize. What if everybody knew the things that were done in darkness? You know, Jesus said men love darkness because their deeds were evil and they don't come to the light lest the light should make their deeds manifest. What if the light hit us and everything that we'd ever done was exposed? We feel like good people. God knows all those things. Solomon said he'll bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, listen, who, will both, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the heart. God not only knows everything we've thought, everything that we've done, everything we've said, He knows the very intent behind which we did it. We can't hide from Him. He knows more about you than you do. And we can't put up a veil of good works and say, God, I am righteous. I'm a good person. I'm sincere. I'll admit, I felt the same way. I felt like O.J. Simpson got off light. I did. And there's been other celebrities and sports stars that have been put on trial, and I've thought the same thing. You know what? They got slapped on the wrist. But you know why that is? That's because some men, if you have the right last name or you've got the right amount of wealth or you're the CEO of some big company or some athlete, you might get a little bit different judgment than others. But God's not that way. That's not going to be a factor. He's going to render judgment and friends... He's going to render it righteously because he's a righteous judge. You say, Ian, this is kind of a downer. (laughs) We come here and you tell us what bad people we are and how sorry we are. Well, friends, I'm just telling you that's the justice of God. But you know what? There's another side to God's nature that I want to look at. His mercy. And God has been trying to teach us about this ever since the beginning of time. We know the story of Adam and Eve. We know the fall of man. 
The serpent beguiled Eve. He deceived her into believing that something God had forbidden her to do would actually benefit her in her life. And you know, it was very appealing to her. It was good to her eyes, it was good for food, and it was something that she desired because it would make her wise. And so she took it and she ate it. And she gave it to Adam and he ate it. And the Bible says the eyes of them both were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. This was their response to their sin. When Van was young, I guess uh, he was about three, we lived in Pampa and uh, my wife had her eye. Guys, you won't understand this. Ladies, you're going to get it, but... She had her eye on this bathroom set from bath, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond. And I, we were pretty poor at the time. I mean, we weren't, we weren't poor, but I couldn't afford that. If you've ever been there, you know what stuff costs. Well, my dad went and bought it for her. Thanks for that, you know. <laughs> she loved that bathroom set. She wanted it, and he did something nice for her. He went and bought it for her. And so, you know, we hadn't had it but about a month. And one night, we're sitting in the living room, and And she said, where's Van at? I I don't know. Well, it's kind of quiet. You know what that means. (laughs) So I said, well, I'll go look for him. So I go and I look in his bedroom and he's not there. And I look in the guest bedroom and he's not in there. And so I'm walking around the house looking for him. And then I finally went and looked in the bathroom and there he is. Now, for some reason, somebody in their marketing expertise decided you know what we should do we should find uh, a line of sunscreen that we can turn the color orange and for some reason we were at the store one day and we said we should buy orange sunscreen it was everywhere (laughs) it was in his hair it was on his face it's on his clothes it's all over the bathtub because he painted a nice little painting in there too and it was just everywhere and she said, did you find him? And I said, I'll be out in a minute because I don't want her to, you know, freak out about the sunscreen that's everywhere. So I'm cleaning the mess up, cleaning him up. And I go out and I say, look, he made a mess. He had some sunscreen, you know, he's, but it's okay. So I go back in the bathroom. I go to get the towels. And, and I notice there's another towel, one that I didn't get out and didn't put there. And it's still folded. And guess where it's at? It's on her brand new rug. It was strategically placed. And I found out where he opened the orange sunscreen. Three years old. Uh Uh-oh. I messed up. What should I do? Cover it up! (laughs) Of course. Isn't that what you do when you mess up? You try to hide, you cover it up. Well, that's what Adam and Eve did. See, they were naked, and they didn't know they were naked. There was nothing wrong with them being naked because they were innocent. But now they had sinned, and now their eyes are open. Now they know they're naked, so they're ashamed, so they covered up. Maybe God won't notice. (laughs) Maybe he won't see that we look different. And what did God say? He said, Adam, where are you? And he said, I was afraid, and I hid myself because I was naked. He said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat the fruit? God already knew. (laughs) 
You know what's interesting? Later on in this chapter, the Bible says that unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them. Now, God, why would you clothe Adam and Eve? They already had fig leaf aprons. Because it is not within the power of man to cover up his shame and his nakedness. See, God properly clothed them. Properly. And you know where he got those coats of skin? Something lost its life so that God could properly clothe man and cover up his shame and his, na- and his nakedness. In the book of Exodus chapter 12, we read about the children of Israel as Moses had gone in there to help them to escape the bondage of Pharaoh. And there had been nine plagues that had been brought upon Egypt. And every time Pharaoh would harden his heart, and God said, you know, I'm going to bring one more, and he's not going to harden his heart. The Bible records here in Exodus 12 and 12, it says of God, He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, He says, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. God said, I am coming through Egypt tonight and I'm coming through with a vengeance and I'm going to execute judgment. I'm going to kill unless you take a lamb without spot and you kill it and you take its blood and you smear that blood down the sides of your door and you smear that blood above your door. He said, if I see the blood, I won't execute judgment on you. I will pass over you, hence the term Passover. You ever just stopped and asked yourself a question? What is it about blood? <laughs> I mean, really, why blood? Why couldn't it have been, you know, smear something else? <laughs> why blood? The Bible records in Leviticus 16, 1 through 34. No, we're not going to read that. But it records about the Day of Atonement. Now, if you're not familiar with this, Israel were, were commanded by God to make certain sacrifices for sin. And once a year, in the seventh month, the tenth day of that month, the high priest would put on his priestly garment. And he would take a bull calf. Now the King James calls it a bullock. That's what it is. It's a bull calf. And he would take this animal and he would kill it and he would collect the blood of this animal. And he would go up here into what was called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he would sprinkle this blood on this ark seven times. And you know why he did that? God said, I want you to go in there and I want you to do this for your sins and for the sins of your family. The first offering that was made that day was made for the high priest and for his family. Then they would take a ram and they would what we would call field dress this animal. And they would take out the the various guts and bowels of this animal and separate it out. And they would take the choicest parts of this animal and they would burn it out here on the altar of fire 
as an offering to God for sin, to go up as a sweet-smelling savor. Then they would take two goats. One of these goats would be just like the bull calf. He would kill it. He would collect the blood. He would go into the most holy place. He would sprinkle that blood seven times. And God said, I want you to do this for all the sins of all of Israel. This offering was made for everyone. And then there was another goat. And this goat was called the scapegoat. The high priest would take his hands and he would put them on the head of this goat. And then he would commence to confess all of the sins of Israel, symbolically transferring every sin that was committed in Israel onto the head of this one goat. And an appointed man would take this goat. He wouldn't touch him. Because he was now defiled. He would have a rope around his neck. And he would lead him way off out in the wilderness. And he'd let him go. And that goat would carry those sins away from God. Where he dwelt between the two cherubims. They did this every single year for sin. Life being lost and blood being spilled for sin. And God explained why they did that. He told Moses in the next chapter in 17 and verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Did you know that? Sure we know that. I mean, we have blood drives all the time and and they give you a t-shirt. You know what it says? Give life. Well, did you go give your life? You gave your blood. But see, we understand that the life is in the blood. You know what? That hasn't been known that much to modern man. They killed our first president thinking they could drain that blood out of his body. They drained his life right out and he died. We understand this though, don't we? The life of the flesh is in the blood. And God said, I have given it to you. Why God? I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. I'll tell you why we read so much about blood. Because the death... That occurs as a result of sin is justice. And when God sees blood, he sees death. He sees life being forfeited for sin. And he sees the atonement being made. But it wasn't about Adam and Eve. It wasn't about Israel. It was about Christ. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Now he's not saying they partook of flesh and blood. He's saying that they're made of flesh and blood. Talking about us. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. He himself also likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Do you know why Jesus lived in flesh and blood? You know, one reason he did that is so he could be tempted in, all, uh, in every manner like we are. But the main reason that Jesus came in a bodily form in flesh and blood is because flesh and blood can die. And he says, through death, through death, he could give us freedom. He could give us life. But he couldn't just be any sacrifice. The Bible says who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 
Here's the facts. If Jesus had broke one law, just one, he would have then had to have received God's justice for his own sins. But he didn't sin. Never committed one sin. Why? Because he had to be spotless. Only then could he make an offering for others. He says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes you're healed. You know, that day came when the plan of God came to a full climax. And the high priest did not go find a goat. He didn't find a ram. And he didn't find a bull. He took our sins and he put them on himself. And they took him and they stripped his clothes from his body. And they tied him to a post. And they took whips. And they began to beat him. Over and over. And tear his flesh from his body. And friends, he didn't deserve that. I deserve that. You deserve that. And Peter said, by his stripes, you're healed. The scapegoat, Jesus Christ. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Does that sound fair to you? It doesn't sound fair to me. It doesn't sound fair to me that an innocent person would have all of my sins placed upon them and then they give me their righteousness and take my sin. Well, see, friends, that's because this is not justice. This is justice and mercy together. They don't oppose one another. They meet at the cross of Jesus Christ because God has to punish sin. And he said, the only way that I can give mercy to the people is to punish sin in the person of my son. Mercy and justice together. For Christ hath also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death, uh, put to death in, the, in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. I'll get that out in a minute. You know, I love this passage of Scripture because it describes what we were seeing happen earlier in Leviticus chapter 16. The idea of atonement. What is atonement? Well, the word atonement didn't exist until the 15th century when they were translating the Bible into English. They came up with a word that described what the Hebrew and Greek word was. And they took two English words and they put them together. They took the word at, and they took the word one, and they made the word atone. We separated ourselves from God by our sinfulness. But he says, Jesus brought us to God. We didn't go bring ourselves to God. We didn't do enough good things that God said, okay, you can come close to me now. No, God brought us to him. Because he paid the payment. The blood was the atonement. Friends, not only did our high priest become our scapegoat, 
Not only did he receive many stripes, but he took those sins all the way to the altar and they nailed him to it. And when God looked down, he saw sin. And the world went dark. And God punished sin. And he was satisfied. Jesus said, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I wonder if these men who he told this really understood what he was saying. I know they didn't. They had no clue what he was talking about. Do you? We're not just talking about the death of a person, okay? People die all the time. That's very true. But this is the one death that matters because this death affected the whole world. It affects you. Do you understand why it affects you? Because without this one death, without this blood being shed, God has to punish you for your sins. Israel understood the justice of God. Peter stood before them and he said, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. What did he say? He said Jesus was delivered according to God's design and God's foreknowledge. God had planned this. But he said that doesn't relieve you from the guilt of taking him and crucifying him by your wicked hands. You know, we didn't drive the nails, literally. We didn't give him the stripes with our own hand, but I'll tell you what, we're responsible for it. Because if we had not sinned, Jesus would never have been crucified and slain. And friends, we're just as guilty as they are unless the blood has cleansed us. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They were pricked in their heart, the Bible says. That word means they were agitated violently. When they heard about their sinfulness and they heard about the Son of God and they heard about God's plan to save them, the Bible says they were agitated violently. And they said, what are we going to do about this? What can we do about this? And you know, Peter didn't say, well, there's nothing you can do. (laughs) There's nothing you can do. It's too late. You made your choices. It's too late. In fact, he said, God will forgive you if you'll repent and you'll be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. God will forgive you. He will give you remission of sins. You know, when they heard this message, they received it in a certain way, they were glad. 
Maybe tonight as we talked about sin, you felt guilty. Maybe it gave you a heavy heart. Maybe this message has pricked you in your heart. Well, I want you to know, friends, maybe that's the case, but I also want you to know this is not bad news. This is good news. No, it's great news. It's the best news that's ever been given to mankind. Because we don't have to receive God's justice. So I have one final question for you tonight. Maybe you're here tonight and you have never done what Peter said to do. Maybe you've never repented. Maybe you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and received the remission of your sins. Well, I have one question. Why are you waiting? What are you waiting for? Well, you know, I'm trying to straighten some things out. How's that going? Well, you know, I'm waiting for the right time. <laughs> When's that? Will it come for you? You may not have any more time. The Bible says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow. Thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You could leave out of here today. You could drop dead. We're going to go out and strap ourselves in a tin can and hurl ourselves down the road at 75 miles an hour. And there's people out there that are drinking, people driving with their knee, texting. And you're going to wait for another time? Well, that won't happen to me. A lot of dead people have said that. Well, you just don't know. I've committed a lot of sins. There is not a sin that you've committed that the blood of Jesus will not cleanse. Friends, maybe you're blessed. Maybe you have a good home. Maybe you've got a lot of blessings, a good family maybe. Maybe you've got a good job. I want you to know those are great blessings. But if you have, don't have the blood of Jesus Christ, you have got absolutely nothing. That is the one thing in life that you desperately need. Do you have the blood? We offer the invitation of Jesus Christ at this time. What are you waiting for? Respond now. Come have a seat. We will help you as we stand and sing.